Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 21. If you want to use the blue Bible in front of you in the pew there, it's on page 17. And as always, just a note that if you don't have a Bible at home, or you know somebody who could use one, feel free to take that one with you, and we will replace it with a different one. So that's what they're there for. Let's turn to Genesis 21. We pick up the saga of Abraham. Genesis 21. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who's done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, 
and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of many people's favorite apps is one called Time Hop. Now, if you don't know what Time Hop is, Time Hop goes through your photos and your social media posts, and it, it shows you what you were doing on this day one year ago, or three years ago, or five years ago. So what I want to do, is, since it's, everybody loves that, I want you to do a mental time hop with me this morning. I want you to think back and picture what your life was like about now, 25 years ago. If you're under 25, it's really easy. But I want you to think back 25 years ago, fall of 1997, in case you're wondering when that was. What did your life look like? Okay, while you're thinking, I'll tell you mine. I'm going to date myself here. I was a freshman in high school, so my life consisted of dissecting a frog in biology class, getting dropped off at school by my mom since I couldn't drive yet, spending my evenings after school split between basketball practice and rehearsing for the school musical. I didn't have a cell phone. We didn't have internet at our house. And a typical fun night with friends meant renting a movie on VHS. Some of you look that up when you get home. So what about you? What about your time hop? What did your life look like 25 years ago? You got it in your head? Now, imagine then, fall 1997, that someone came along and promised you that they were going to give you $1 billion someday. They didn't say when, they just said, I'm going to do it. I will give you $1 billion. They said, you just need to keep trusting me that it'll come. Now, think about all that has happened in your life since fall of 1997. All the births, the deaths, the marriages, the moves, the job changes, the ups, the downs. Now, imagine going through all of that, still waiting for that promise from fall of 1997. 25 years come and go, all of them with this promise lurking over them. So on the best of days, you think, oh, I bet it's coming soon. And on the worst of days, you think it'll never come. Year after year, you think maybe this year. Every New Year's Eve, you're like, this is the year we get the money. And year after year, the promise doesn't come. And with each passing year, it starts to feel more unlikely. And then it starts to feel doubtful. And then it starts to feel impossible. Now, your benefactor comes along. He offers assurances along the way, but nothing actually changes. But then, in year 24, he comes and tells you, you're close. 
One more year and the promise is yours. But I mean, it's been two and a half decades of waiting at this point. You've built your life around this promise, but will it ever really come? That's where Abraham and Sarah find themselves at the beginning of our passage. Their time hop would take us back to Genesis 12, when God makes these audacious promises to Abraham, saying he's going to bless him, give him a land, make him into a great nation, and give him many, 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 many offspring. And they've left everything behind to build their lives on these promises. It's been 25 long years of waiting. And now it seems impossible that the promise could ever happen. Will this promise come? And that's where we pick up in chapter 21. So we're going to look at this. You can see in your Bible, it's kind of broken down into what seems like three different stories. So we're going to look at it in three sections. If you have, there you go. So first in verses 1 to 7, we're going to see the child of promise. Then in verses 8 to 21, the child of flesh. And in 22 to 34, the everlasting God. So hopefully that'll make more sense as we unpack them. So we've got a lot to get through here, so let's go. Let's pick up our story in verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So right out of the gate, there's no buildup, no more anticipation. In fact, it's somewhat anticlimactic. After 25 long years, he's here. The child of promise is born. Now this, keep in mind, this is maybe the second longest anticipated birth in the Bible. We've been waiting for this child and feeling this tension between the promise and the reality ever since Genesis 11.30 where we found out, hey, this woman who's going to be the mom, she's barren and she has no child. So ever since Genesis 11.30, all the ups and downs of Abraham were left wondering, is it going to happen? And now... In Genesis 21, the one on whom all the promises hinge has come. Now, when it announces his birth there, it says the Lord visited Sarah. And that's a, that's a really significant word, that word visit. It shows up as some very important points in the story of redemption. I'll give you just a few. At the end of Genesis, Joseph tells his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. When Moses comes to Egypt and tells God's people, hey, God sent me to do something, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And then one more. It's the word used in Jeremiah 29. You know, I have a plans for you to prosper you not to harm you everybody knows that verse back up one verse and it says when 70 years are completed for Babylon I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place so you can see this word is connected it's woven into these mighty acts of God where he fulfills his promises to his people one day it would tell of an even greater promise being fulfilled in the New Testament, when Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, when he prophesies about the birth of Jesus in Luke 1, listen to what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Like one of the things that struck me that I'm not even beginning to unpack in this is go back, I hope after this series in Genesis 12 to 25, go back and read your New Testament and just see how much this colors your whole New Testament. Abraham's everywhere. So back to our text. What do we have here in verse one? We have verse one, Isaac being born is something massively important to the story of God's plan to redeem his people. And the main thing that you're supposed to see in these first couple of verses is that it happened just as God promised. Do you see that? Three times it says, as he had said, as he had promised, as God had spoken. What's the point? God kept his word. What he promised, he did. We're meant to see that this is not just some biological fluke, not some happy stroke of good luck. Like, oh, that's... Good on you, Sarah. That's, that's really happy for you. No, the birth of this child is God fulfilling his promise and doing just what he said he would do, as he always does. Then the next two verses, you see Abraham responding to the fulfillment of his promise. He responds in obedience, two ways. First, he names the son Isaac, just like God told him back in 1719. And then he circumcises him, just like God told him in 1712. So this is what faith does. Faith responds in obedience. Faith responds in obedience. Then in verses 5 to 7, we see laughter. We see the laughter of joy that comes when God keeps his promises. These verses, first of all, the author kind of goes out of his way to remind us how ridiculously impossible this birth really was. He says, hey, don't forget, Abraham was 100 years old. Like, lest that get lost in the shuffle. He's like, this man was old. Even Sarah herself says, she says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? What she means is, who would have dared promise something that crazy, that impossible, that good? No one would dare do that except God. And yet, she says, it came true. I have borne him a son in his old age. What he promised, even though it was crazy and audacious, it happened. Friends, God loves to make these bold, audacious, seemingly impossible promises. I mean, there are so many things that we could put Sarah's question in front of. I mean, who else would dare to say to us that God would one day take on flesh and become one of us? Who would dare to say that this God-man would die for the sinners who were sinning against him. Who would dare say that this dead man would come back to life again? Who would dare tell us that because of that, all of our sins could be wiped away and remembered no more? Who would make a claim like that? Who would dare say that we can be changed to our very core? That what we love, who we are, and how we live can all be transformed by God's Spirit in us. God's Spirit in us. Who would claim that? And who would claim, who would dare promise that one day this Christ Jesus will come back to make this broken world new and make it so good 
that even your best days here are nothing more than a blurry reflection of how good it will be then. Who would dare say all those things to sinners like us? Only God. And when God makes good on his promises, notice Sarah's response. Now there's an important wordplay in our passage going on here. Do you remember what Isaac's name means? It means laughter. So in other words, when laughter is born, Sarah says in verse 6, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. Her laughter of doubt and disbelief back in the tent has been transformed into a laughter of joy and wonder at what God has done. And she says, others are going to join in this laughter. They're, they're not laughing at her. They, the laughing over me is a weird translation. Like it's, it's laughing with me. They're, they're saying, they're going to hear about what God did for me and be like, <laughs> are you kidding me? That's incredible. Sarah had a baby? I mean, she was always saying that, but you know, Sarah, I mean, she's getting up there in age. I didn't know, but she had a baby. Friends, what this should make us stop is and, want, and ask is, do you ever just laugh? at the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. I mean, it's not just so sturdy and static and true and we just got to, God has done this for me. It's like, we're alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and God made you alive. You were just like, what? We were blind and now we see. We're forgiven. You are really forgiven. If you're here and you're a Christian, your sins are gone. What? Like Abraham and Sarah, we've done everything possible to mess things up, and yet God has unchangeably set his love on us, no matter how little we deserve it. It's laughable. It's incredible. It's impossible. And it's true. And why is it true? Because God keeps his promises. And for Abraham and Sarah... He gave them a son, a child of promise, just as he said he would. All right, so now we think, oh, happy ending. They all lived happily ever after. Let's go home. It'll all be good, right? Well, not quite. In verse 8, we see that when Isaac was weaned, Abraham threw a big party to celebrate. Now, back in this time, things were a little different. This would mean that Isaac was probably around two or three years old is when a child was weaned. And one of the reasons they celebrated this occasion was because there was a really high rate of infant mortality. So the family, if a child made it to three, they figured, okay, the worst danger is past and we can celebrate that he made it. All right, so he's out of the most dangerous phase of his life. We think he's going to grow up. So they have a big party. That's what Abraham does here. And it's a, it's a joyous time of honoring little Isaac, at least for most people. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, this is a different kind of laughter. This isn't a laughter of joy, but of mockery. It's the same word we'll find later in Genesis when Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of trying to take advantage of her in order to laugh at the Egyptians or to make a mockery of them. In Judges 16, after Samson's eyes are gouged out and they call him into the court to entertain is how the ESV translates it, but it's basically so that he can be laughed at. 
He can be mocked and, ha look at strong Samson. How strong are you now? What Ishmael is doing here is laughing at Isaac like that in mockery. And when the Apostle Paul talks about this scene in Galatians 4, he says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. So we don't know what he said. We don't know exactly what he did. But clearly, he's mocking Isaac about something in relation to his role as a child of promise. Now, what's interesting is that what Ishmael is doing here is from the same root word as Isaac's name. There's a lot of wordplay in this. So what Ishmael is doing, he's Isaacing Isaac. Do you see the play on the word laughter here? So there's two types of laughter in our passage, and both of them declare someone's position in relation to God's covenant promises. Sarah laughs in joy and wonder as one who trusts the covenant promises. Ishmael laughs in mockery and derision as one who stands outside the covenant promises. And Sarah is not going to tolerate that. When she sees it, she tells Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She does not want her son's inheritance threatened by this other kid. So she tells Abraham, him and his mother have to go. She tells him to cast out the both of them. Now, verse 11, understandably, this troubles and upsets Abraham. I mean, after all, we cannot forget Ishmael is his son. So he has a natural paternal affection. But there may be even more going on here than that. Abraham might also be displeased because this, if he casts him out, there goes his backup plan. Right? I mean, after all, Isaac is still only three. So he's out of the worst danger. But I mean, what if something happens when he's four or five or six? It sure would be nice to have another heir in waiting just in case something happened to plan A. But God's not interested in our backup plans. He wants us all in, trusting in him and his promises alone. Not hedging our bets or having a plan B just in case this God thing doesn't work out for us. So God comforts Abraham by reaffirming his promises for both sons. Look at verse 12. He says, be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Now, at this point in the story, we have to hit pause. So if we're watching the film, here's where we, we pause and we, we go somewhere else. Because for us to understand what's going on here, we need the help of a commentary. And the best commentary we have on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And there's two places in the New Testament that shed light on this passage right here, and they help us see what this passage is showing us. Okay, so I want you to turn with me to these. The first one I want us to turn to is Romans 9. So turn in your Bibles to Romans 9. In this chapter, Paul is dealing with a really important question. He's dealing with the question, does the fact, does ethnic Israel being cut off because of their lack of belief in Jesus as the Messiah does that mean that God's promises had failed? Like God had made all these great promises specifically to Abraham that 
His offspring would be blessed and prosper. But now that Jesus has come and they've rejected him, it seems as though, God, I don't know if your promises still stand. So look how Paul uses our passage in Genesis 21 to start answering that question in Romans 9, verse 6. Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, so do you see what Paul's saying here? He's setting up a contrast for us. He's setting up a contrast between Isaac, the child of promise, and Ishmael, the child of the flesh. Now, what does he mean by those two categories? What what do those labels mean? He's saying that one child, Ishmael, came about through human efforts, through Abraham and Sarah's schemes and plans and efforts and actions, through the flesh. That's Ishmael. While the other child, Isaac, was brought about supernaturally through the promise of God. In our passage, we see that the child of flesh, Ishmael, is cast out. The child of flesh is not counted as Abraham's offspring in terms of the inheritance or the covenant promises. Instead, it is Isaac, the child of promise, who is counted as his offspring. And I love it that Paul doesn't just stop there. He tells us authoritatively what this means. What it means, he says, is that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but children of the promise. In other words, it means God's people always have and always will be children of the promise. They will come through promise, not through human effort. It means that there, are, there is no human criteria that can make you right with God. Make, to be made right with God, you don't get that by virtue of the situation you were born into. Whether the country you were born into, the ethnicity you were born to, it doesn't even change if you were born into a Christian family. There's no criteria of if you went to church or being a good person or you tried the hardest. The only way is through God's supernatural work in a person through his promises, just like Isaac. That's what Romans 9 is showing us. But now let's make sure that we're on the right track. I want you to flip over to the other place our passage comes up. So flip over to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. And several times throughout this letter to the church in Galatia, guess what Paul is arguing against? He's arguing against trying to be right with God by following the right rules and doing the right religious things. Listen to what he says in chapter 4, starting in verse 21. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. 
These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. So notice, what does Paul do yet again? He sets up a contrast. And here he uses both Isaac and Ishmael, and he uses their moms, Hagar and Sarah. And he says these two women represent living under two different covenants, two ways of relating to God. On one hand, you've got Hagar, the slave woman. She represents those who try and try and try to keep the law. But because they look to the law to be righteous, they're actually enslaved to the law. It constantly demands more and more and more of them. Because if you fail in one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. The law says do and do and do. And Hagar represents those who depend on their own efforts to be accepted by God. And you see what's true of the slave woman's son, the child of the flesh? He has no permanent status in the home. He's always in danger of being sent away. Just like with Ishmael, all it takes is one misstep, one laughter and mockery, one wrong whatever, and he's cast out. So there's a constant insecurity, always wondering if he's been good enough that he'll be allowed to stay. Or if he messes up again, will he be cast out? Some of you know exactly what this feels like in your relationship with God. You live on the treadmill of performance, trying to keep up with all that you're supposed to be doing to be a good person, to be a good Christian. Even as the treadmill speeds up faster and faster and asks more and more of you, you got to read more of your Bible. You got to spend more time in prayer. You got to go to more Bible studies. You got to do more evangelism. You got to give more money. You got to start in more organizations. You got to read more books. You got to listen to more podcasts. More, more, more. You live with a constant low grade fear that at any time you might do the wrong thing and be sent away by God. So you try harder and harder, but never feel secure in your standing with God. Paul says this is what it's like for those who look to their own efforts to be accepted by God. But what other choice do we have? That's what Sarah represents. She's the free woman. And she represents those who instead of relying on their best human efforts, live by faith in the promises of the gospel. Her son is a child of promise. And what is it like for him? He's secure in his father's love. He can rest because he knows he belongs there. He will never be sent away. Friends, for those of us who belong to Jesus, this is us. When we live by faith in the promises of the gospel, we don't have to fear We are secure in our Father's love. 
We are his rightful children. How do we know? John 1 tells us, to all who did receive him, to who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He says it right there. Born not of flesh, but of God and his promises. And when we are his children, we can know we belong. We don't have to live on pins and needles, walking on eggshells, wondering if God will be done with us if I step wrong. What if I blow it again? Because Jesus himself said, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The slave does not remain forever, but the son abides forever in the house. Friend, if you are repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone to make you right with God and fulfill all his promises to you, that is your standing this morning. Did you see what Paul said to you in Galatians 4.28? Now you brothers and sisters, you, like Isaac, are children of promise. We are children of promise, friends. We are secure in the Father's love and we will never be cast out. Now, back to our story. After God assures Abraham of his promise to show kindness to Ishmael, he painfully parts from Hagar and his firstborn son the next morning, and they're sent out into the wilderness. After a little bit, the water runs out, and things start to look pretty bleak. Hagar puts Ishmael under a bush. We should note, the way it's worded makes it sound like she places this small child. He's about 16 at this point. Okay, so she's not... she's not carrying him and setting him under this tree. She's just telling him like, hey, you stay here. I'm gonna go over here. Why does she separate? Why does she leave her child under one place and go a bow shot away? She doesn't wanna watch her kid die. She can't bear it. She thinks the end is near and she just can't handle hearing and seeing her boy suffer. And as she's weeping and waiting for the end, suddenly an angel speaks to her in verse 17 says, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. After he says this, then God opens her eyes and she sees a well of water. She goes, she fills the skin with water and gives the boy a drink, and they're able to live and journey on. Now, what's really interesting here is did you notice that twice it tells us that God heard the boy. Now, did you also notice that nowhere in chapter 21 do you find Ishmael's name? He's always the son of Hagar, the son of the slave woman, or the boy. His name is not used once. As the child of flesh to whom the covenant promises don't belong, it's a way of starting to make him fade into the background. And yet, when he's in need, twice we're told that God hears him. Now, what does Ishmael's name mean? God hears. So even though we never hear his name in the chapter, it's as though God won't let us forget the truth of the name he gave him. He may not mention Ishmael by name, but he's saying God shamas him 
God shamas him. He's heard his cries. And when the God who hears responds to his cries, he responds with kindness and compassion to Hagar and Ishmael. He provides water in the desert so they won't die. Even though they may not be part of his covenant people, God shows them common grace. And why does he do it? Because it's just who he is. God is gracious and merciful. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. And then we come to the last story about Abraham making a covenant with Abimelech. And to be honest, it can feel a bit out of place. So we have to ask, why is this story here? Like, what is all this treaty making, swearing an oath over a well? There's, there's sheep, and I don't understand what this is about. Well, let me end our time by just giving you three quick things this last story shows us. First, God is with Abraham. And even Abimelech recognizes it, right? He says to Abraham in verse 21, God is with you in all that you do. Abraham, he's no dummy. He recognizes there's something different about this guy. This Abraham, yes, he's, he's become powerful and wealthy, but it's clear to him God is the source of all those blessings. It's not just that this man is some extraordinary man. There's something going on here. God's hand is on him for good because through all that's happened, he's watched as God has constantly taken care of, protected, and provided for Abraham. And so what does this pagan king do? He comes to Abraham to establish peace. He says, look, I want to be on the good side of God's chosen one. He wants to experience the blessing of Abraham and to be blessed in him. In other words, Genesis 12 is starting to happen. Abraham's become great enough that a powerful king wants to make peace with him. He's turning him into a great nation. And this other nation is seeking blessing in Abraham. Why? Because God is with Abraham. That's the first thing we see. Second thing you see is that while the promises have started, they aren't fulfilled yet. Abraham has a son, but he doesn't have offspring as many as the stars. He's in the land, but he's still only sojourning. All that he can lay claim to is a single well. But the sun and the well are like a deposit, a guarantee that the fullness of the promise is coming. As surely as God has provided these, he'll provide all that he promised. Abraham would have the inheritance that God promised him. And friends, as Abraham's children, we too have an inheritance. Peter tells us we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from, Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by faith are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what's coming. There's a salvation. He says, it's not here yet. Like, you're saved, but salvation is not fully here yet. Like, you think this is good? There's more. There's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But we don't have it yet. But, like Abraham, we were not left without a down payment on the promise. Because Paul says in Ephesians 1, In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He says, you've got something good coming, Christian. Oh, you don't even understand how good it is. It's not here yet, but I'm gonna give you a down payment. What did God give Abraham as a guarantee of his inheritance? He gave him a well of water. What has God given us as a guarantee of our inheritance? He gave us his spirit. Now, what did Jesus say about his spirit in John 7? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Sounds like a well. But what does that have to do with the spirit? Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The point is that both Abraham and we are supposed to see that even though we've tasted the promise, We've gotten a morsel, we've gotten a little bite, a little nibble, and thought, hmm, that is good. Friends, the full meal is still waiting to come. This isn't all there is. If you ever run into struggles in your life as a Christian thinking, is this all there is? No. You've just had the faintest little sniff of an aroma coming from the kitchen. You've just gotten that little finger in the bowl to taste it. You haven't set before the banquet yet. The feast is coming. There's so much more. See, Abraham had a well, but one day he'd have a homeland. We have the spirit, but one day we'll have our full inheritance in God's presence. Which takes us to our final point from the story. Abraham looked forward in hope because his God is the everlasting God. You see that in verse 33? Abraham planted a tree and called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. His God has always been and will always be. Abraham knew what Moses would say later in Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you'd formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And as we sang earlier, this everlasting God does not faint or grow weary. His promises are invincible and his goodness is unchangeable. Abraham knew he didn't have to rely only on what he saw today. He could walk by faith and not by sight because his God is the everlasting God. So what does Abraham do? He plants a tree. I love that. A tree that would take a long time to grow. Like you don't plant a tree. Trust me, I have trees in my backyard I planted. They're painfully slow in growing. My father-in-law mocks them every time he comes and asks me like, oh, how are those trees coming? They're still like this big. The point is that trees take a long time. So Abraham has all these promises and he plants a tree, a tree that will remind him and one day his children and their children that God's promise is coming. A tree that would always remind him of Abimelech's words, God is with you. In all that you do. Christian, we have a tree that reminds us God's promise is coming. We have a tree that will always remind us of Jesus' words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We can know that's true because he is the everlasting God. So Chapelwood, 
if we are united to Christ by faith, we are children of the promise. We. Our God always keeps his promises. Therefore, the best is yet to come, and our everlasting God will be with us every step of the way. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we are so thankful that that is true. We praise you as the everlasting God. Lord, you have always been and you will always be. And so we rest in your foreverness. We thank you that in your mercy you've rescued us, not because we tried hard enough or got it together or pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps, but because you kept your promises. You showed kindness where it wasn't deserved. You showed mercy where we had done nothing but rebel. And supernaturally, you made us your children. And so God, now we can rest secure in your love. Not in fear of whether the next sin will be the means for our being cast out. We can know that we are safe and secure at home with our God. God, we pray that like Abraham, we would trust these promises and we would continue to walk by faith and not by sight until our time is done or until you come back. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.